You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio with host Roxana Moran. Today's episode, focused on the future of AI and medicine, features Ami Bhatt and Mintu Tarakia. Hello, it's Roxana Moran from Mount Sinai Hospital coming to you on Rock's Heart Radio. And I'm just so thrilled for my guests today, uh, where we're going to be talking about um, intelligence in medicine. And, uh, and I have two fantastic uh, guests today. Uh, so let me introduce my first guest, uh, um, uh, Dr. Ami Bhatt, who is associate professor at uh, Harvard Medical School. She is currently the chief innovation officer of the American College of Cardiology, where she's been a member for over 20 years. She also is obviously a a practicing cardiologist at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I'm just so thrilled to have you. Welcome, Dr. Bott. Thanks Um, for having me. and, uh, And then my dear friend, and colleagues, somebody I learn from every week um, as we are both associate editors at JAMA Cardiology. Uh, it's Mintu Tarakia. Uh, he's professor of medicine, director and co-founder of the Center of Digital Health at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's chief of uh, cardiac electrophysiology at the VO, VA Palo Alto Healthcare System. Welcome Dr. Tarakia. and if it's okay, since we're friends and we're going to have a nice informal conversation for us to, for me to uh, address you with your first names. Is that okay, Mintu and Ami? Of course, we are all friends. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, great. (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, thank you for making time for this conversation on Rock's Heart Radio. I'm thrilled to have you both. There's been so much talk about um, the incorporation of artificial intelligence, telecardiology, all of these things. And I know Ami, and I'm going to put you up first because I know you had a lot to do with this much longer before that, before the pandemic that anyone would have thought about um, getting into the patients with uh, using um, technology to, to get closer to the patients. So if you had to do it over again, first of all, first and foremost, where do you see the future, but what would you have liked to have seen as we were incorporating some of this um, uh, telemedicine and, and information technologies into the daily practice of medicine? Yeah, thanks for asking, and, and thank you for having us on the show today. So um, I think let me start with what I would have liked to have seen. Um, I started doing telemedicine in 2013, so long before it was cool to do. Um, and in fact, I had trouble finding friends who wanted to do it with me. And maybe that's actually the point, which is a lot of what we've done, whether it's with digital health technology, even in the origins of remote patient monitoring, um, and definitely with with virtual visits, was try and take technologies and then shove them into the clinical workflow that we've all been doing for the past 40 years, which really medicine hasn't changed much in terms of how we bring a patient in, see them in the clinic, send them home, follow up with them. And, And the idea that we could take these novel mechanisms and without a novel workflow or a novel concept of how we want to work with people, try and just shove that in. I think that was part of our problem that led to people not wanting to change, patients not having a good experience, um, and professionals who were trying to do it maybe even burning out because they were kind of swimming upstream. So I think thinking about what we're designing and designing it together with an idea of what is that eventual patient-clinician interaction look like? 
we have to use design thinking the whole way when we're doing that. It's not an other thing. It's not something that other people do. It's what medicine needs to do. So, you know, I wish we had done that instead of just shoving it in, but, but we're getting there now. Yeah, Looking no, at- I, I think so. And I think one of yeah. our, and many of us, I mean, you hear about clinician burnout, uh, a lot of it, if you ask them has to do with electronic health records and so much of the digital information that never stops. It just never stops. It's a constant constant workflow. And Mintu, you too have been very much responsible on so much of what's going on, especially on the digital wearables and the fact that now um, clinicians are supposed to also be very much involved in this. How do you see the balance um, of technology, of real intelligence by clinicians, and then, of course, uh, what machines are doing for us and wearables, et cetera? It's a great question. I, I think um, I, I, I think there have, I think the missteps have been an implementation and I'll get to that. I mean, Ami did a great job describing the workflow issues. I think we did a poor job as trialists in uh, evidence implementation. So clinicians have their workflow. I would argue that trialists have their workflow, which is they wanna see patient level explanatory, double blind, double dummy RCTs when possible. And that just, that playbook doesn't work in digital health. These are open label studies where you're doing interventions on improving the performance of a doctor or improving how the patient interacts with healthcare. And so you need to use a different playbook for evidence generation uh, with implementation science. And, and that's where we're learning. And as that relates to what you just said about the data delusion, the obligation of the clinician, um, I still hold that the best use of AI is to do things that clinicians and healthcare systems don't get directly paid for, because that's a pain point that just won't ever go away. So whether it's scheduling, coordination of care, um, arguably uh, improving the time to diagnosis, not replacing a clinician, but uh, making that easier and faster as a pre-diagnostic is, is another area. The other place you get into is actually all the patient-generated data, whether it's wearables or something else. And then finally, um, it, th- there are companies now that are looking through clinician-generated data to get to a solution. So could you trust a really good AI system over a um, very busy or less junior clinician or one who doesn't know how to dig through 400 pages, quote unquote, of the medical record when you have a patient in front of you with shortness of breath in the emergency room, right? So those are all areas where you're not directly reimbursed, but they can improve the job of the clinician. No, that's such a good point. Um, and, And I just wish that we could kind of get to that because it seems to me that the genie's out of the bottle, that the hospital administrators have now learned ways to uh, cut back on physician time and physician payments and uh, work towards um, actually using some of these digital technologies to replace some of the work that physicians used to do and pay them less, or uh, even some of the um, decision-making algorithms now, especially incorporated into the electronic health records, would take a lot of time and effort for physicians to overcome um, to say, well, no, I know better. This algorithm is telling me that I have to prescribe this medicine, but actually I feel like I want to do X, Y, and Z, and that freedom is getting taken away. How do we, how do we um, get this 
sort of sorted in a way that works for both hospital systems, physicians, but most importantly, for the patients. So I'll start with you, Ami, and then I'll come back to Mintu to yeah. answer this question. So I, I love that you say that. And, and I'm going to branch off of what Minthi said about the, the junior person challenge. And I'm going to go to a senior person. I'm going to go to a senior subspecialty cardiologist, not saying anyone in this room, who sees a patient um, in 30 minutes, because that's what we do, right? Technically, although many of us run late and, and that's a thing. And during those 30 minutes, the patient has symptoms. They have a wearable at home that they're probably using. They have remote patient monitoring that we've actually prescribed for them. They have guidelines about their information. They have the EHR and they have whatever the most recent science is that's out that hasn't made it to the guideline yet. And that's all the information that's available to provide the kind of high quality cardiovascular care that we can do today without fail. But that senior clinician will maybe take a little piece of each of those because they're fast and they've gotten good at it. A little guideline, a little EHR sweep, a little, I think I saw this earlier this week. And how are you doing? Give me that one Apple Watch reading or something like that. That's not optimal to what the kind of care could be. And I think that's the driving force and the driving story of where we're headed. We're not headed somewhere where someone's going to tell that subspecialist, this is how you care for them. We're headed somewhere where we say, let me augment what your clinic visit is like with the most up-to-date information on your patient, their symptoms, their wearables, the current guidelines, what the good studies are out there defined as you want to define a good study. And let me give you that. Here's a little augmentation of what you could do today. Now use your clinical acumen on top of that. That's what we're aiming to get to. And I think that message is an important one that gets lost when we think about, hey, well, that clinical decision support is going to tell me to use this drug and I don't want to. That's not the eventual goal. And so I think we have to reframe it because then all of a sudden that clinician is really valuable in that equation. Very valuable. And this can't be done without them. Mintu? Yeah, great points. Um, and I think you asked a lot of, uh, there was a lot kind of in the, in the commentary and the question you had. So let's start with um, reimbursement and labor arbitrage. So reimbursement has gone down, but I don't know yet if it's because of AI or automation. I think, for example, in my world of AFib ablation, reimbursement has gone down because you uh, people are getting faster and faster with AFib and Medicare sees that. And there are tweets about how fast people can do a procedure. And so um, it's the natural evolution, regrettably, for many reasons that this happens. In terms of automation, CMS right now has an open determination on how to think through AI reimbursement. So the incremental cost of AI is very low. It's pennies on the dollar to move uh, less than that because you're just moving around electrons. The, the issue is, is where the industry is, is coming here is that actually AI is not so, uh, the incremental cost may be, or the marginal cost may be low, but the development cost, the assurance of safety, the recalibration of AI um, and the deployment and the regulatory side is very, very expensive, possibly even more expensive than physician workflow in the short term. So I think the jury is out as to where that settles. We don't know. But I don't think right now it's because of that. There is a, there, there is a larger looming issue in healthcare of whether, um, so, so on one side, letting people work at the, at the top of their license is, can be a thinly veiled way of saying, we're going to take away everything else and bring it down. So actually all the income or the value you, you bring to the healthcare system now starts diminishing. 
And that can be where automation starts, but I don't think it's going to start with doctors. It could start in other places in the hospital. And that's a very complicated and sensitive uh, topic for sure. Um, I think that you want to have clinician autonomy, but you also want to minimize inappropriate variation in care. And, and for me, as one busy clinician and all the things I do, I cannot keep up with the guidelines and the 100-page documents. Those should be written out as ontologies with logic that can parse through the ER to tell me where I'm hitting and where I'm not hitting. And I should see my own performance over time. And in addition, see how I can improve the care of the patients in front of me. And so we've, we've done this with software we've built that's clinician fishing with hypertension. Others have done this. And what happens is we started seeing our clinicians start with two drug therapy for hypertension first, which is kind of a key marker in the hypertension quality community. So part of this is actually moving us along as clinicians to do better, as Nami said. There's no question that uh, I see I see the value of this, of course, on so many levels. And I think what's uh, what's now I'm hearing from some of the patients who I take care of, my goodness, no doctor has ever looked at me. Um, they're just looking in their computer and I feel completely lost. No one ever explains anything to me. And when they explain it, it's all in these digital formats and there I'm supposed to come with my iWatch and this and that. And we're, we're maybe making a lot of assumptions that our patients are highly, highly um, uh, familiar with these uh, technologies. And they're most, for the most part, especially the elderly are not. So how do you foresee embracing of this culture, this new culture of care uh, for, for our patients who we, we're assuming are feeling like they're getting the best care from their physicians, yet they hardly talk to them? Yeah, I think um, this is where, you know, before I took this job, I was director of outpatient cardiology and telecardiology at Mass General, and we, and we saw this a lot with the patient, which is we do episodic care. And in that one episode, we expect them to have the health liturgies, literacy, the digital literacy, everything else that we haven't really taught them. And then we have an interaction, right? Or we say, you don't have any of that. And we have an old school interaction. We don't take advantage of the things that we could be talking about. And I think that's where continuous care comes in. Instead of seeing people episodically, but treating them continuously at home, I think that's where blended care and team-based care come in. Um, because you need to have these conversations multiple times with anybody when it's something like cardiovascular disease that you're talking with with those patients. There are times where we will be on a virtual visit and most of it is spent talking about what is this valve? What is your valve disease? Showing them pictures because people are visual learners. So in fact, we turn that computer around and instead of saying my back is facing you in the clinic and I'm stuck in an EHR, it's, hey, I'm face-to-face -face with you over Zoom and let me show you some really pretty pictures and let me answer your questions because that's just what we're gonna focus on today. I think parsing out health literacy through the team also, and through virtual and in-person, that's how we get the health and digital literacy to rise. And then we're patient. Blended care doesn't mean it's always 50-50. Some doctors will have a lot more of one than the other. Some patients will want more, a lot more of one than the other. And that's totally okay to be on a spectrum that meets what the clinician and what the patient needs. But we have to be comfortable using blended care. I'm into your thoughts on that. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, the other thing is let's not confuse, uh, let's not conflate technology with bad human-centered design. Whoever made the choice to put the desk in the corner 
<laughs> with uh, with your computer and Epic running, uh, miss the mark, right? Like if you had a low desk that was big, the patient sat in a chair where they felt more human on the other side of it, you had a monitor with a small footprint that was at the side of the desk, I'm sure the interaction would be viewed very differently, right? So th th there's a design aspect in healthcare that that's a whole other conversation that doesn't happen. And maybe, I mean, my ask would be that the professional societies take on um, user experience in hospital design, because that's an area that they haven't taken on. So that'd be my plug to you. Um, I think, um, I think, as Ami said, the technology is, is part of the solution, but let's also recognize that there can be generational shifts that can manifest based on complexity, okay? So if you like, what is a very commoditized encounter is getting COVID vaccination or a COVID test, COVID test specifically. You don't need to know much. You just need something, okay? That's it. All You just need something. And that basically, those things are now getting delivered in very efficient ways outside of our healthcare systems. On the, on the other side is like someone has a horrible cancer in their child and they, you know, they have to make a family decision about high risk therapies, right? That's a very tailored solution. That's digital health is not going to work there, but, but tech can work where things are commoditized. There's also a generational expectation. We saw this during the pandemic, all of a sudden the restaurants that could just put out reliable food, food and put it in the hands of a food courier did much better than the two and three star Michelin restaurants when society was uh, shut down, right? So there is a new generation that's expecting care to be commoditized when possible, and that's okay. We have to keep in mind some of these older patients who have more serious conditions and complex care. So there, there is a continuum here, and I don't see a one-size-fits-all solution. Where our value is as humans and clinicians is going to be across the spectrum, but making sure that in the high-risk or customized care, we're available. And that's where I think design comes in. Oh, Mintu, you're so brilliant. I just can't even, you know, what you just said is just so right on with um, how I see the future. So let's end this now. It's hard to, to end this. I can talk to you guys for hours, but um, just sort of like, I want to see the view to the future five years from now, just five short years. And you know, uh, when I say that five years is a short period of time, I can't believe sometimes when we talk about pre-pandemic that that was like three years ago. So it goes very, very fast. So five years from now, and I'll go with you first, Mintu, because we always end best with, with women. They start and end everything <laughs> in my show. <laughs> so Mintu, you get to uh, go first. Five years from now, what you would like to see in digital health. So I, I, well, there's what I'd like to see and what I think will happen. They may not be the same, but I'll, yeah, well, I'll give us both. I'll, give us both. <laughs> I'll give you where I think we're going. And I think I'm very optimistic about it. So one, we're going to start seeing um, more telehealth for simple, discrete things. And we, all of us are going to be getting their telehealth that way. An easy example is when you go overseas and you want COVID testing to get the CDC approved letter to return you actually can book a telehealth visit where somebody watches you do it. It's a lot easier than walking around trying to figure out where to get tested and waiting for the result. So we will see device manufactured telehealth combinations in other areas that start getting progressively more complex. I, I think we'll have a, a better framework for evidence generation that isn't patient level RCTs. A lot of us are working in these areas. And I think we're gonna start seeing AI in kind of messy or fuzzy areas. Um, mining through health record data, 
NLP and sort of clinician enablement to really get to evidence-based decision-making more quickly. I think those three things would be important steps. And you think reimbursement will be aligned with this for physicians? I, I, I don't know. I Again, I don't think um, AI is going to lower the cost of complicated care. Where it's more interesting is where it can do pattern recognition quickly, such as radiology or ECGs, perhaps there, but I think it's too early to know. Thank you, Mintu. Ami? Um, I think there's three different concepts uh, that I would talk about. So the first is I think population health-wise, a lot of basic cardiovascular risk factor management does not lie with the cardiologist and perhaps in the future it won't. I think that's where we can think about pattern recognition, about intelligence or, or analytics and algorithms helping manage things like hypertension, which is an epidemic in our country, really outside of the hospital period. So I think that's going to happen. I think the second is we're really going to start using community health partners. We can't get to a majority of the country, and this is a problem globally because we're not in those communities. So I think what we are going to see is the use of digital health, not necessarily in the hands of a person at home, but in the communities where certain at-risk populations live that don't have access. And we're going to see building those kind of digital health um, access points in whichever form that is. And that's where a lot of healthcare is going to start to happen with the more complicated care than being referred in to what we call our tertiary centers or, or the, the um, more complex disease management areas. And then the third thing I think we're going to see is we're going to see an AI-enabled workforce everywhere. Um, so, you know, I'm turning into somebody who's, you know, ranked as older when you say, which age group do you fall into? Um, and I look at my, my daughter's generation and you see that they are very tech enabled, very digitally enabled. And that's true across socioeconomic spectra. That's true across races and ethnicities. And it's true across the globe. So I think when we have an AI enabled or an intelligence enabled workforce, that's going to look very different. And then they're going to really be able to do what we refer to at the ACC as collaborative intelligence. Decide what data goes in and then look at the analytics output and say, I agree, great. I don't agree. I'm going to go back and fix it. Not this is a fail, which is what we say nowadays. Or, gee, look, it gave me some interesting new insights. This is called discovery. And I think that's where we're going to be, um, I hope, five to 10 years from now. Wow. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Ami, for your wonderful insights. Thank you, Mintu, for your incredible work and also brilliant comments. But but I want to thank you both for um, the work that you have done over the last many years dedicated in incorporating um, digital health into our daily practice, but also doing it in a really, really um, conscious way of including clinicians and understanding the intricacies. I think if we left this to sort of tech companies to do without true um, passion of physicians like yourselves, we would be in a much, much worse place as we are today. So thank you for your incredible work. And thank you for your leadership and thank you for being on the program. Uh, and this uh, has been our, our talk on digital health and artificial intelligence and AI in clinical medicine. Thank you all for listening. And I look forward to our next, um, next show, but I'm not so sure it's going to top this one. Thank you both.